much appreciated worship ministry. Today's message, The Offering That Changes Everything. Through section, The Struggle of Stubborn Stains. We were in London for a medical appointment this past week, so stopped by Costco for a few items that are best obtained there. In particular, we are looking for a stain remover that's my wife's favorite for when she spot washing laundry by hand before it goes through the washing machine. That product is called Shout. Any other Shout fans in the audience today? You're aware of it anyway. We usually buy a big jug of it because we go through so much of it, but we were disappointed because there was none in stock. So we rather dubiously settled for an alternative product, yet we're doubtful it will prove as good at getting stains out as my wife's preferred brand. Will it pack a punch when it comes to dealing with those stubborn stains? And there are those stains that won't come out no matter how hard you try. Some of you may have a a nice coffee table with a solid wooden top. Perhaps you use coasters or something else to protect the finish. Because at some point in your life, you may set down a hot cup of tea or water jug while watering the plants, only to pick it up after and see a permanent water stain has been created in the formerly uniform finish of the smooth wooden top. Congratulations, you've just discovered what doilies are for. A lacy white doily covers a multitude of stains, or in this case, watermarks. Stubborn stains in our clothing or on our furniture are one thing. A stain on our character is even more troublesome. There's no shout, no Murphy's oil that can restore character when it's been marked by some transgression that becomes a target of others' criticism. And so we feel ashamed. We try to hide that sensitive area. We keep a a doily on top of it. Or we may become brusque, bristly, crusty, subtly warning people not to bring up our shortfalls or they'll be sorry they ever mentioned it. But at nighttime when we're alone trying to fall asleep, those indiscretions, those missteps come back to haunt us. They become fuel for Satan's accusations of our soul. Our passage today begins in verse 5 with a therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? It points back to the first four verses of Hebrews 10. In that section, the Old Testament law is shown to be an inferior cleanser, not up to the snuff of shout, as it were. The law was given through Moses to keep a lid on sin, to identify it so that people would become aware of their need for salvation. It sets limits so people could discern what was fair and what was foul. The law served as a a sort of babysitter to point people to the Savior who was to come. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3, 19 and 24, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. The first four verses of Hebrews 10 points out the law's impotence, what the old covenant was powerless to do. It cannot be a reality, it's just a shadow, a a foreshadowing. Hebrews 10.1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. The law cannot make worshipers perfect. Hebrews 10.1b It can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, 
make perfect those who draw near to worship. Morally speaking, it's not as good as shout in the laundry room. It can't make sinners clean. The law cannot relieve us of our guilt. It is powerless to cleanse worshipers. Hebrews 10.2 The worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. The law can't help but remind sinners of their sin year after year for the ceremonies at the temple were repeated over and over as long as the tabernacle temple system remained intact. 10, Hebrews 10, 3, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. And finally, in this description of the law's impotence, it cannot take away sins by the blood of animal sacrifices. 10, 4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So that's the backdrop for today's lesson. That's what the therefore is there for to highlight the impotence or powerlessness of the law, to throw into relief the stunning significance of what Christ accomplished once and for all. Section, a body for the obedient one. And by the way, uh, thank you to those who took part in Journey Through Bethlehem, from which the picture today is drawn, and thanks to Anthony for his photographic work there too. And uh, Lynn took some good video as well. Advent means coming and refers to Jesus coming into the world at Bethlehem as a baby born to a poor working class couple in less than ideal circumstances. And he is coming again on the clouds to take his people to himself as he begins to reign as Lord and King of Kings forever. The writer of Hebrews is focusing in this passage on the significance of Jesus coming as a baby, taking on human flesh as a once-for-all sacrifice that would accomplish what the law was powerless to do. 10.5 Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Jesus came into the world. He chose this mission, chose to be born as a human, Though he had existed with the Father and the Spirit and the mystery of the Trinity from all eternity, from before time began. He through whom the heavens were made and the mountains were put in place, through whom all life forms on earth were designed and propagated, himself became one finite instance of a person. Verse 5 says, A body you prepared for me. Jesus became incarnate. The Word took on flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. The Father Almighty prepared a body for the Son, and Jesus made a conscious choice to inhabit it, to become knit together with its soul and body like any human. He stepped out of eternity and into time, left his throne at the Father's side, and submitted himself to hunger, tiredness, having to physically walk to get anywhere, finally to suffer immensely through scourging, beatings, and crucifixion, a slow and painful death designed specifically to bring a maximum of pain and agony to the criminal before they finally expire. That was all part of that conscious choice. Why did he choose this path? Because, as verse 6 points out, 
with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Animal sacrifices could not atone for human wrongdoing. They merely covered it, were a temporary but ineffectual fill-in pointing ahead to the ultimate real sacrificial lamb, Jesus, who would be the actual lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as announced by John the Baptist. Verse 7 continues to quote Psalm 40 to point out how Jesus deliberately chose and accepted this appointed role. Verse 7, And I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, here I am. Kind of like, behold, I'm here. Bible in basic English puts it, see, I've come to do your pleasure, O God. It was written about him in the scroll, prophesied by Moses, Isaiah, and others. But Jesus still needed to accept that part to walk out onto the world stage and fulfill that script all the way to the bitter end, to become the unique offering that once sacrificed would be the saving means for people's sins to be forgiven. Who can read through Isaiah 53 and say, now there's a preferred future I can truly aspire to? Some excerpts from that passage. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted. Verse 8, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Huh? Despised, rejected, suffering, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, oppressed, cut off. Gotta get me some of that. No way. We'd be running 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction. That's the playbook Jesus was accepting as he willingly funnels himself into that helpless, innocent, infant form in the manger. Hebrews 10, 7 and 9. I have come to do your will, O God. Here I am. I have come to do your will. He becomes the obedient offering. Obedience is doing what the other person wants, doing their will. Jesus emphasized his disciples. He was always tuned into the Father to do God's pleasure, not seek his own pleasure. John, some passages in John here. John 4, 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 530. My judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 638. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Which of us is perfectly obedient? We slip up in many ways. The father of five children had won a toy at a raffle. He called his kids together to ask which of them should have the present. Who is the most obedient, he asked. Who never talks back to mother? Who does everything she says? 
Five small voices answered in unison, Okay, Dad, you get the toy. Next section, the radical reset. Today, the fourth Sunday of Advent is traditionally known as the Love Sunday. Love is not some passing hormonal high. It is not romantic infatuation. It is not what we feel toward that can of quality street candy because they invoke in us a sugar high. True love is hard work. Overlooking our spouse's imperfections. Waiting up for that teenager to come home when they should have been back quite a bit earlier. Love is showing forbearance to that person who views the pandemic differently than you do. Love is getting up for that aging pet when they whine to do their business in the middle of the night. Love is stooping to help that aging relative with their bathroom needs. Love is walking around with that colicky infant until they're soothed. In short, love is sacrificial. It puts the other person's needs ahead of our own desires. Love for God harnesses us to do his will, to, to make our life an offering in response to all his goodness and kindness expressed toward us. The last couple of verses in our text express a radical reset that Christ's willing offering has brought about in a couple of ways. First, with respect to the law. Second, in regard to our sanctification. With regard to the law. Jesus has upset the old temple sacrificial system, made it redundant, outdated by, in fact, fulfilling it. He has become the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the one and only truly necessary and fitting perfect sacrifice offered in our stead to offset our sins. Hebrews 10, 9b. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Here the words, the first, point back to verse 8. Sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings. In short, all that the law required to be made. Jesus represents the end of Old Testament religion even as he fulfills it and inaugurates a new era. God's kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling people's lives. He establishes the second, the new covenant, the new deal. What was written in the scroll when God would write his laws in people's hearts and move them to do his will. It really is a sea change, spiritually speaking. When we read about the early church, we're impressed by the significance of Peter's vision in Acts 10 of the sheet let down from heaven full of unclean animals being told by God not to call anything impure what he has made clean. Then understanding this to mean it was okay to go preach the gospel even to Gentiles at the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. That was a real turning point for the early church. Now this passage in Hebrews isn't quite as dramatic, but no less revolutionary in terms of setting aside centuries of Hebrew belief and practice, updating it to put Jesus instead of the Torah and temple at the center of spiritual life. Jesus not us. Jesus sets aside the first, the system based on law, to establish the second. Christ, by the love offering of himself, has laid the foundation for a whole new way to approach God. So it's a radical reset in terms of the law. And it's also a radical reset in terms of our 
sanctification. How do we get that shout in our lives to clean away our stains, blotches, and blemishes? How can we ever become clean morally in God's sight, forgiven of our guilt and trespasses, those glaring water rings on the furniture of our character? Hebrews 10.10, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. NRSV. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Did you catch that? We have been made holy. We have been sanctified. Jesus' body on the cross not only performed a reset on the whole Jewish religious system, his bodily sacrifice has sanctified us, has made us holy. This is called positional sanctification. Judicially, we are declared forgiven by heaven's judge. We are formally, formally acquitted of all crimes. We are in God's eyes clothed with Christ. In the words of the prophecy from Isaiah 53:6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 12, for he bore the sin of many. Consequently, in the great swap, verse 5, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Peace, healing, being put right with God, justified, declared righteous. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3, 22 and 24. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Justification is like the cleansing of the glass. Sanctification is like the filling of the glass by the Holy Spirit. We see the progression from being justified to being sanctified in Romans 8, 29. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That glorification involves being conformed to the likeness of his son. That is, being like Jesus in how we live. Learning to be like Jesus in my attitudes, behaviors, and character. Section saintly or stunted. To the degree that we are conformed to Jesus' likeness, we are holified, sanctified, filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit. This is now moving into what's called progressive sanctification. We're a work in progress in terms of lived out holiness. We won't be perfect at it until Jesus comes back. First John 3, 2 promises, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Because we hope in Jesus, that motivates us to purify ourselves, progress in our moral house cleaning in response to the vast love he proved by giving himself as an offering on our behalf. What does progressive sanctification look like in real life? 
How are we being made more holy in character, having already been made holy positionally in God's eyes? Well, it's an effort. It's a discipline. It's a volitional choosing to please God, much like Jesus choosing to do God's will earlier in this passage. It's a moment-by-moment deciding to present our bodies on the altar sacrificially. The New Testament writers employ language like put off and put on, like getting dressed to go outside in cold weather. Ephesians 4.22 You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a conscious warring against evil, putting to death wrong desires, Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. When the world tries to press us into its mold, conform us to culture, it involves choosing to be non-conformist, training our minds to remember and live by God's word, not popular opinion or what the neighbors are doing. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What was Jesus' attitude, according to Hebrews, when he was quoting Psalm 40? I have come to do your will, O God. See, I have come to do your pleasure. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. A most helpful ally in this war on evil, moment by moment, is the habit of a daily quiet time. Choosing to set aside a block each day to connect with the Lord by reading his word and praying. Find the time that works best for you and try to protect it from other incursions. That way God's teaching is fresh in your mind for the Holy Spirit to remind you when an occasion comes to apply it. Uh, Peter admonishes us in 2.2, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That growing up is progression in salvation, becoming more like Jesus. Are you becoming more saintly like Jesus or stuck and stunted in your salvation? Now that it's winter, the leaves have fallen from the deciduous trees and they look quite differently than they did back in the summer. What was once bushy and healthy may now reveal a hawk's nest up in the top or Maybe a Virginia creeper whining a network amongst the branches. In some places, there would be mistletoe growing. Now, I know you all like think this is the season for mistletoe for another reason, but let's think about this one. Now, I know, uh, okay, did you know mistletoe is actually a parasite? Mistletoe is not a good thing for a tree to have visited. 
Mistletoe, as a parasite, slowly sucks away some of the tree's vitality. We as Christians sometimes have hidden sins which, like the mistletoe, slowly suck away our spiritual vitality. Although not always evident in times of outward spiritual health and fruitfulness, like the trees with the leaves in summer, we must always examine ourselves for those small, often unseen parasites of sinful habits that will sap our vitality. We must also remember that just because they're not apparent now does not mean that in another season of our life God will not reveal them for all to see. Uh, Section, Jesus' sacrifice, the key to sanctification. Summary, the Old Testament law was fulfilled by Jesus and then set aside as his sacrifice became the once-for-all means by which people could truly be put right with God. He came at Christmas, chose to indwell a human body in order to effect that painful substitution that would pay our penalty and set us free to be God's holy people. Our response to his loving sacrifice is in turn to love him more than this world's temptations, to put to death the body's misdeeds. As 1 Peter 2.1 puts it, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. See the genius of God's plan? The Old Testament law centered on do's and don'ts. Whereas the new covenant supplies Jesus' justification and the Holy Spirit's sanctification to empower us to choose to please God, whatever the situation, in complex areas more extensive than a list of do's and don'ts would ever cover. The great missionary David Brainerd, who spent his brief life, he died before the age of 30, ministering to American First Nations people, wrote in his journal, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. When my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. He also said, I find my Indians, you'd say today, I find my First Nations people begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified, end quote. He was saying, in other words, when a Christian realizes who Christ is and what Christ has done for him or her so graciously, it tends to have a dramatic effect on your life not only in salvation, but also in holiness. Let's pray. Holy God, we are ever conscious we have fallen short from your glorious will for us. And we thank you that your Son chose to do your will perfectly, and by that to bear our iniquity and wash us clean by his atoning blood. Forgive our sins. Help us be on guard against the mistletoe of secret sins creeping in and drawing us away from you. We need your spirit to infuse us with your power, your love for others, your insight into what we most need to do moment by moment. Help us, God, not remain stunted, but to live like the saints we are before you, the saints you have made us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.